0: Amen. Thank you, guys. Y'all got a Bible with you? Say yes. And uh, let me invite you to open it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. As we continue and actually begin a brand new series entitled Authentic Repentance. You know, last Sunday night I had a great time here on campus. Uh, one of the things that I love doing is just kind of walking through the crowd. We had tons of people here and share the gospel one-on-one. And I actually had the opportunity to do that on several occasions, but found out some rather interesting stuff. So uh, one particular individual that I spoke with... I basically went to him and began by, you know, introducing myself a little bit and asking him what church that he went to. He kind of told me what church he went to. And then I transitioned the conversation from church into his relationship with the Lord and just simply said, you know, church is very, very important, but not the most important thing. Most important thing is what's going to happen to you after you die. So when you breathe your last breath, where do you feel, feel, feel like you'll spend eternity? And he said, heaven. I said, well, okay, that's awesome, man. Tell me how you're so confident that you're going to heaven whenever you die. And then he begins to say, well, it's because I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I, I've tried to live my life right, and uh, basically I'm a good guy. So then I just said, so you, you think that if your good works outweigh your bad works before God, that you're going to spend eternity in heaven? To which he responded, yeah, that's, that's what I believe. I said, well, let's, let's test. Uh, How good you are for just a moment and I began to ask him some questions and I've done this a ton of times and love doing it But just use the law like the Ten Commandments, right? So I just asked him, you know, have you ever told a lie before to which he said yes? So uh, what does that make you? It makes you a liar and uh, the Bible says liars will have their place in the lake of fire. And then went on to ask him the other question, have you ever stole anything before? And I found it interesting, most of the time when I ask that, people are like, no, I've never done that before. And I'm like, you just told me you're a liar. Y'all all right? But anyway, so I, I went on and said, have you ever stole anything? And he, he said, yes, I have. I said, well, that makes you a thief. And the Bible says thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, have you ever murdered anybody? He said, no. I said, well, that's good. And then responded to him as well that Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart, towards God is considered, listen, or anger towards anybody is considered murder in God's courtroom. Also, mentioned to him that Jesus says that you should not commit adultery. And if you've ever looked at a person with lust in your heart, it's considered adultery. So those are four of the Ten Commandments. Six more of them are pointed at you. But the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So one day you're going to die, you're going to stand before God and be judged based upon His law. You're a lying, thieving, murderous, adulterer at heart by your own admission. So whenever you stand before God, do you mean to tell me at that moment you're going to be like, I'm a pretty good guy? He says, well, I never really thought about it like that. I said, well, let me let me tell you this, what God has done for you so that you can be forgiven of your sin. And I began to tell him about Jesus. So I said, you know, Jesus was born of a virgin to ensure his purity. Jesus lived a sinless life. And then he went to the cross to actually die. In our place, so he bore the punishment that you and I deserve on the cross at Calvary. He was buried and resurrected. Then he stopped me right in the middle of sharing that and said, "Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, man, I believe that. Uh, matter of fact, I, I've been saved uh, like three or four times, and I've been baptized a couple of times." He began to go through all of these things, and then I began to realize something that is absolutely sure about the culture and community in which you and I live. There are many people uh, radically confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are individuals, and this is no joke, right? Eighty-five to ninety-five percent of the people that I shared with Sunday night mentioned the fact that they thought they were going to heaven because they were good. But as soon as I began to try to introduce to them Jesus, they would say, oh yeah, I believe that. I believe, yeah, I've heard that before. I, I know that, I know that, yeah, 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 I've done that. Well, listen, if you have genuinely given your heart to Jesus Christ, you would never think that you were good enough to go to heaven. So somebody's royally confused here, right? And this is the culture in which you and I live. God has planted this church to make disciples in this culture. Every single one of you who are born-again believers are missionaries in the community. So let me just ask, how many missionaries we got up in here? Can you all slip your hand up? So if you're saved, you're a missionary. God has brought you into the kingdom so that you can minister the gospel in this particular area. And many people don't understand the gospel. In fact, when I was sharing with one guy... I asked him if he would wear, he felt like he'd spend eternity whenever he'd die. he died. die. He just flat out said, hell? I think I'd go to hell. I shook his hand. Thank you for your honesty, right? You, you, maybe you've never told a lie. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? That was one of the commandments. Y'all listen. It was a joke. But anyway, so uh, I was, I, I mean, I, I've never been so pleased for somebody to tell me they were going to hell when they die in all my life, right? But this guy understood the fact that he did not deserve to go to heaven. Now, if you and I are going to share the gospel in our culture with a whole bunch of people who have heard it a thousand times and they think they're good to go, how are we going to share with them truth so that by God's grace they can actually be saved? What is it that's missing in the gospel that people think they've got to ask Jesus into their heart like 15 times? What is the problem? I think the problem is people have not experienced authentic repentance. And without repentance, you cannot be saved. And so this morning, we're going to run into a guy who's normally called the rich young ruler. He's nameless. Nobody knows his name. And yet he's a guy who does not experience genuine transformation in his life. And we're going to see why. And ultimately, it's going to be because he does not experience authentic repentance. So look in your Bible. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. You've got it there. Stand with me in honor of God's Word. Uh, You've got it there. Say yes. Say yes. And this is huge, so you've got to pay attention. A ruler came questioning Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And notice what Jesus does now. He's going to introduce the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things, this is the rich young ruler, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, and this is a huge four words right here, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Hey, listen, very quickly, uh, whenever you read a text like this, sometimes you're like, oh, he's talking about wealthy people. doesn't apply to me. Listen, all of you in the building, filthy rich in comparison to everybody else on the globe. So all of us are wealthy, so don't be like, this doesn't apply. It applies. Can I get a witness on that? (laughs) That was good preaching, wasn't it? It applies. I learned that in seminary, all right? <laughs> Verse uh, 25, it's e- and Jesus is like, let me compare this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with God, or impossible rather with people, are possible with God. So let's bow together. Father, take your word now, plant it into our hearts, draw people to salvation, challenge us as missionaries to go forth with the gospel. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So you can be seated. You know, the question of eternity actually rests in the heart of every single person on Planet Earth. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, He's made everything appropriate in His time, and He has set eternity in their heart. See, the same God who created a desire for us uh, of hunger and of thirst also set a desire in us for eternity. The desire for hunger and thirst leads us to look for food and for water. The desire for eternity leads us to search for something that will satisfy that niche which God has given every single one of us. Could you imagine, by the way, this morning, if you had a desire for hunger, but there was no food? Could you imagine if you had a desire called thirst, and yet there was no water? Or could you imagine as well, likewise, that there was a desire within you for eternity, but there was no eternal life? Without a doubt, God has given us that desire, which gives evidence that the desire actually has something that will fulfill it. God's grace extends to all of us a desire for eternity. The rich young ruler desired eternal life. That's why he comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You may be here this morning and wonder, How can I be promised eternal life? How can I go to heaven whenever I die? You may know somebody in your family, know somebody in this church or even in your workplace Who is asking the exact same question. So what is the answer? How can a person inherit eternal life? Now, the answer ultimately is authentic repentance and faith. See, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Listen closely. You cannot have faith in the death of Jesus Christ as payment for your sin without repentance. And you cannot experience true repentance without genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, authentic repentance is preached uh, throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 preaches the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus said in Luke 24, it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all of the nations. And then as you leave the Gospels and enter into the book of Acts, where the New Testament church is birthed, they came to Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus, and said, well, how can we be saved? Jesus or Peter's like, repent. Peter says in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, Repent, therefore, turn, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's something pretty obvious about inheriting eternal life. Have y'all figured out what it is yet? Something obvious is called repent. It's a fun word to say, by the way. On the count of three, let's all say it. One, two, three. Repent. But what is repentance? Well, the word repent means to change. One commentator notes when studying Scripture, you get a three-part definition. So repentance is a recognition of what sin is, followed by a heartfelt sorrow culminating in a change of behavior. So genuine repentance is like, I see sin for what it is. It is an offense against a holy God worthy, listen, of damnation. I experience a heartfelt sorrow over my sin. My heart is wounded deeply by my sinful deeds and condition. And now I am determined to change my behavior following hard after the Lord. So authentic repentance involves a change of your mind, a change of your emotions, as well as a change of your will. So repentance is where everything in your life radically changes. And when you repent and trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation and forgiveness of sins, that is the moment in which you inherit eternal life. So the real question this morning of our text is, how do I know if I have not experienced authentic repentance? How can I be confident that, yep, I've not experienced this life change in me? So at least two truths kind of come to your mind. And I'll be honest, and everybody eyeball to eyeball for a moment. Some of you this morning, if I would have ran into you last Sunday or maybe some other time this week and shared the gospel with you and asked you how you knew you'd go to heaven, some of you would have been like, I'm a pretty good person. And then as soon as I begin to introduce Jesus, you'd have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, I've got that, man. I, I've done that. So as I shared the story about sharing the gospel with somebody last Sunday, I fear that some of you may be in the exact same boat. And that boat, man, does not lead to heaven. So I want to encourage you this morning to pay attention to this message like you've never paid attention to one before so that God, by His grace, if need be, could knock the scales off your eyes that you might see the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. So you got there this morning. Two major truths. Y'all ready for number one? Say yes. So you know you've not experienced genuine repentance if you are unwilling to identify your sin against God. So if you're unwilling to identify your sin against a holy God, look at verse 18 in your Bible. Rule of question. Jesus saying, "Good teacher, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good?" Check it, no one is good except God alone. Now Jesus here is not denying himself to be deity, that is God in the flesh. But rather he's already teaching the young man from the onset that we are all sinners before a holy God. He is establishing the fact that God alone is good in contrast to this rich young ruler's thought that he is good. So we're going to see this morning that this man's major spiritual defect was his reluctance to confess his own spiritual bankruptcy. So look at verse 20 in your Bible. Jesus continues, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. So in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, we read the same story. Matthew includes the fact that Jesus also told him that he must love his neighbor as himself. So in this verse, Jesus begins to bring attention to the law of God found in the Ten Commandments. And this, by the way, is massive because this law is written upon every person's heart and their conscience bears witness to it, just as we saw last week. But note very quickly this morning that the law of God, are y'all listening say yes? The law of God is not a ladder that you climb to get into heaven. The law of God is a mirror that exposes your sinfulness before a holy God. It's very essential that we all understand that. And I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said. He says, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. And then Ray Comfort writes, the biblical proclamation of the gospel is law to the proud and grace to the humble. No intelligent farmer sows seed onto hard soil. If he does so, he will reap a disappointing harvest. He first turns the hard soil, breaks it up, and then plants his good seed into the prepared soil. A wise person in sharing the gospel will take the time to do what Jesus did and prepare the soil of the heart with the law of God. And look, Paul the Apostle says in the book of Romans that he would not have known sin had it not been for the law of God. Now, very essential that we understand the law of God does not... Are y'all listening? Say yes. The law of God does not save us. The law of God, the Bible teaches, actually condemns us. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3 that the law of God kills. Jesus turned a rich young ruler's attention to the law so that he might have the opportunity to see his own sin. So he begins to expose to this man the law. And then notice his response in verse 21. He says to him, all these things I have kept from my youth up. Now, I read that and I'm like, liar. Y'all listen and say yes. You ain't never back talked your mama before. Who is this guy to think that he stands before the law as good? He is fooling himself. Rich young ruler claiming to keep the law. He was claiming ultimately that his life was good. And this is a massive mistake. So many people make it. Paul the Apostle teaches in Galatians 2 that if you can be saved by measuring up to the law, then Jesus Christ died needlessly. It's like the law exposes our sin and points to our need for a Savior. Very huge. The rich young ruler looked at the law as a place to point out how good he was. He did not allow the law to point out how sinful he was. Paul writes in Timothy, 1 Timothy one eight, saying, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, this is huge. You've got to look at the preacher eyeball to eyeball. This means the law is good condition if we use it lawfully. This means literally that someone can use the law unlawfully. They can mishandle the law of God. And how does a person mishandle the law of God? They mishandle it. By using it as a bragging post, by using the law to try to show someone that they are good, instead of allowing the law to show them that they are depraved and wicked at heart. And this happens all too often when sharing the gospel. Just sharing this past week with somebody and ask them if they had ever told a lie, they're like, Everybody has. You know what they're getting at? It's deflection. Everybody has. They're trying to say, don't be pointing the finger at me, man. Everybody's guilty of that sin. So then I continue, have you ever stole anything? And at that moment, we lost eye contact. He's like, there's my wife and he leaves me standing at the altar. (laughs) You know, it just walks away. I'm like, "What, what, what is up with this? Here's what's up with it. He was not ready to use the law lawfully. He did not want his sin to be exposed. So as soon as he could get out of the conversation, he was rolling out. But you know, oftentimes this is it. People in our culture think to get to heaven you got to be good. But how good? How good is good enough? How holy do you have to be to enter into heaven? Can you enter into heaven if you just had one little sin in your life? Can you enter to heaven maybe if you just did ten sins? Twenty sins? Thousand? I mean, what's the li- how good is good enough? You know, Krista, my wife, is actually sharing the gospel with somebody who works not far from here. And she's sharing the uh, story with me at the house about how she is seeking to lead her to faith in Jesus Christ. But she doesn't understand she's a sinner. She doesn't understand that she cannot save herself. And so as a result, if you do not recognize that you're a sinner, then you cannot be saved. Absolutely essential. And so she carried the book written by Andy Stanley, which is a great little book. I'd encourage you if you want to read something that's short. uh, It's just called How Good Is Good Enough. And the goal there is literally for someone to see their sin. Now, the rich young ruler, unwilling to identify his sin before Jesus, he moves closer with the law of God. This is awesome, right? The law is like a mirror on the wall. Jesus says, all right, here's the law, rich young ruler, look in the mirror. Uh Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. Honor your father and your mother. He looks at it. Yeah, I've done all that. Jesus now, in our text, is going to go and rip the mirror off the wall and put it right in front of His face. You're not paying attention. Look here again. Notice what He says, verse 22. Jesus heard it. He said to him, one thing you like. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now Jesus knew that the man had a problem with covetousness. The young man possessed a strong desire for the world's goods. His entire activity of life was seeking to earn more money, seeking to have more property, seeking to possess more things. So everything that he did in life, everything that he thought about, all was driven by desire for what the world had to offer. One of the commandments of God is that you shall not covet. Jesus exposes the sin in his heart by asking him to do something he knew a covetous person would never do. And the problem here is that the young man still would not identify himself as a sinner. Which leads us to an application. Y'all ready for an application? Say yeah. And you gotta listen because this is the longest sentence I've ever written in my life. Are y'all listening? But you gotta pay close attention. If you have not experienced a time in your life It's like sometimes there's there's times when I'm preaching that I wish I could go out there and shake everybody by the shoulders, all right? And I'd be like, pay attention. This will be the time, all right? So can we just imagine for a moment that I have gripped you by the shoulders and just shook you hard and said, you need to listen now. If you've not experienced a time in your life when you realized and identified your sin before a holy God, there's no way in the world you've experienced authentic repentance. And therefore, there's no way in the world you have experienced genuine salvation. Pay attention. If you've not repented of sin, you cannot say you have faith in Christ. They come together. Repentance, faith, two sides of the same coin. Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus Christ. And when this happens, and somebody's like, why will you go to heaven? You will never say, because I think I'm a good person. You'll never respond like that if you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. The only way we can be saved is by His grace. And so many people are missing it. Because so many people are so arrogant. So stinking prideful. They won't say they're a sinner. Not as bad as they are. If you don't admit you're a sinner, you can't be saved. And you know you've not experienced genuine repentance if you're unwilling to admit that you have sinned before a holy God. Listen, this, is, this isn't even about your sinning against just people. All right? This isn't about like you're sinning against the church. It's about you have sinned against a holy God. God. Psalm 51, by the way, is a phenomenal picture of genuine repentance. Where David, after committing adultery, comes to God in prayer and says, Against you and you alone have I sinned. We we sinned against God. Allow your brain this morning to get outside of comparing to everybody else and just look at the Lord for a second. All of us are wicked. Sinners. If we don't admit it, we cannot be saved. There's a second reality. You know you've not experienced genuine repentance if your grief over sin is shallow. If your grief over sin is shallow. And you see the response of this rich young ruler after the mirror was put right in his face. Verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad. Four powerful words there in that text. He became very sad. Why? He was extremely rich. Now notice here the scripture states he became very sad. How do we know this is a shallow grief over sin? How do we know this is, look at the preacher, just shallow sadness over sin? How do we know that? Because this grief did not lead him to repentance. Remember, repentance leads to a change of mind, a change of the emotions and the will. And we see the young man was not willing to sacrifice his animal possessions to follow the one true God in Christ. And don't get me wrong, though, this morning. He felt bad about it. The Bible says he walked away saddened. But his grief was a grief that Paul describes, listen to the preacher, as a worldly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This is why the rich young man had going on a sorrow of the world. He would have been like, my bad, I cannot do what you're asking me to do. Sell all my possessions, give to the poor, just can't do that. See, the sadness was produced in his heart over the fact that his sin in that moment was exposed. But instead of identifying him, he was simply saddened by the fact that he got caught. And one author states, examine your sorrow over sin. Can I shake y'all twice in a sermon? I want to shake you now. Examine the sorrow that you claim to have had over your sin. Examine that this morning. Is it a worldly sorrow as in, I feel sorry, I, I I feel so bad, I'm sorry I got caught, i sorry I don't look good in this situation, I'm sorry I'm not all that you want me to be. That, listen, is worldly sorrow. This means that you may have heard about the fact that you were a sinner before a holy God and actually felt bad about it. Saddened by it. You, you may have looked at this preacher up here and I was just a moment ago saying, all of us are sinners and you may be sad. He will like he's right. I am. He's exposed it. But be very careful that the sorrow you are experiencing is not worldly sorrow. Paul the apostle massive statement about that. He says it produces death. If you're a sorrow over sin did not lead you to repentance, change of mind, change of emotion, change of behavior, then you've not experienced true repentance and faith. Worldly sorrow leads to personal justification over sin. Worldly sorrow leads us to personally excuse our sin. Worldly sorrow leads us to compare our sin to others. Worldly sorrow is not recognized as legit by God. Worldly sorrow hangs its head in defeat, but does not bow its knee in humility. Worldly sorrow. Y'all see verse 24? Look at what Jesus says to him now. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Y'all see that? Say yeah. Jesus didn't say those who possess wealth would not go to heaven. If that were the case, Abraham, David and Solomon, all these guys wouldn't be in heaven. Uh, Those jokers were rich in the Old Testament. So what Jesus was saying is that possession of wealth doesn't keep you from heaven, but if your heart is possessed by wealth, it'll be difficult for you to repent. How difficult? Jesus compares verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's the comparison. How easy is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? It's impossible. Now, when I was uh, 9th or 10th grade, I used to stay up late on Saturday night, like some of y'all do. Y'all with me? Say yeah. And I would watch SNL, Saturday Night Live. I'm not commending the show, just telling you a story. (laughs) But there was one particular skit that was based entirely upon the verse that I just read to you about the camel and the eye of a needle. They had some guys who were considered biblical guys in the skit. They were riding on camels, and they read that verse of Scripture and immediately got together and created a manufacturing company to make massive needles that the camels could go through. Isn't it crazy? Much funnier when I watched it. (laughs) But shooting you straight, that's what happens. People try to take the Word of God, twist it, try to make it say something that it doesn't say. This, This Scripture says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Every single one of us are rich by the world's standards. And that's why in verse 26, you've got people who are listening to Jesus carry on this conversation with a rich young ruler. And then they, they pipe up, right? And they're like, then who can be saved? who, Who can? I mean, we just heard Jesus, this rich young ruler. He says he's lived according to the law. He says he's a good person. Who can be saved? Interesting. Jesus goes on and says the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So you see, man cannot save himself. Man cannot claim to be good enough. Man cannot clean his heart. Man cannot clean out one single sin in his life. But God, that's a different story. God can radically change a person's life. Salvation is not a work of man. Salvation is a work of God. Y'all remember Nicodemus? He came to Jesus in the evening, found out what you must do to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, that's what Jesus tells him. He's like, you must be born again of the Holy Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Are y'all listening? Say yes. Because this is where the gospel gets down to the crux, all right? How can a person be born again? Well, Jesus goes on and says, you know, the wind, it blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Y'all seen this, haven't you? You've looked out your car window or out your house window when the wind was blowing. You didn't see the wind, but you saw the effects of the wind. You saw the trees leaning over. saw the stuff brushing by. Same here with the Holy Spirit. He says, this is how it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. See, when the Holy Spirit begins to work in your heart, He grants you repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance. So repentance is a gift that God gives to those who wholeheartedly seek after Him. But just like you know when wind is blowing outside by the bending of trees, so you also know the Holy Spirit is working by the bending of hearts in repentance. See, repentance... Produces a change of mind, a change of emotion, a change of the will. So down with this. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. The devil believes in Jesus. Down with this, I've been baptized three, four, five, six times. Down with that. Do you know Christ personally? Have you turned from your sin in repentance and trusted Jesus Christ? That's the question. Has the Holy Spirit brought about a change in your life that humbled you where sin was exposed and acknowledged and godly sorrow brought about authentic repentance? Change of mind, change of emotion, change of will. If there's no change in your life, there is no Christ in your life. When Jesus moves in, He changes everything. It's massively important. But you know, I think about... Paul the Apostle of this morning when he wrote this particular letter uh, to the church at Corinth, the first letter he wrote to Corinthians, are y'all listening say yeah, the first letter he got all up in their face right from the get go in chapter one. He moves on pointing out every single sin in their life. and then in second Corinthians, it's almost like he feels bad that he wrote First Corinthians. Cause I, I, I know that the first letter was hard, but I'm so thankful that it led you to godly sorrow, which led to repentance and faith. Are y'all listening? Say yeah. Cause that, that's the deal. Cause you, you may listen to me preach eyeball to eyeball right here. You may listen to me to preach this morning like, man, he's, he's angry. Maybe he's mad at us. Uh, man, he's shouting at us. He makes me feel horrible. Great. All right. That is awesome. All right. If you feel bad about your sin, you are going in the right direction. Now, the question is, what are you going to do with it? Because you can walk up out of this building just like the rich young ruler left the presence of Jesus saddened in his heart. But no change. That's worldly sorrow. Anybody can feel bad about getting caught. This happens all the time at our house. we got four kids. They get caught doing all kinds of stuff. Get caught fighting. We'll get on to them. So we'll tell, you know, one sister to tell the other. It's like, Maddie, tell your little sister you're sorry. Y'all ever done this with your kids before? How do they respond? They're like, sorry. (laughs) They're not sorry. It's like, put a little sorrow in that, man. And that's, that's how all, that's how we act with God, though. So flippant. Here's the sin. Sorry about that. My bad. That's not godly sorrow. Hey, check it. God, not impressed with that. Not at all. Genuine repentance leads to faith, which ushers you into eternal life. So you ought to examine yourself. What kind of sorrow do you have going on at the moment you claim to have placed your faith in Jesus? Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow. Massive difference. So let's just do that for a moment. Can we examine ourselves? Can, can we examine ourselves? That's the question. So, so here's the examination. Now, here's the deal, man. If you, if you're prideful and arrogant, you're going to try your hardest not to listen to this. So, uh, pay attention. Question that you ought to ask yourself. Have I experienced genuine sorrow over my sin? Have I seen my sin as an offense to a holy God worthy of condemnation? Has my grief over sin been shallow? That is, I felt bad about it, but there was no true inward change in my life. Have I truly been born again? Hey, hey, you, you know what's uh, amazing about this, this text and about this entire message? It's like, this ain't no joke. This is this not like, this is, eternity hangs in the balance. So this, this isn't just some sermon you show up to and listen to and be like, oh, that was an alright sermon today. Uh, that's not the case. It's like heaven, hell, what you do with Christ determines which way you go. So you keep playing around with it, you're going to end up in hell, bro. So I kind of leave you with Holy Spirit Inspired words from the book of Acts. It's like, what, what do I need to do? Repent. Turn. That your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that, that's where it's at. Listen, that, that's the thing, right? I, I kind of told the first service this. I'll tell you guys this too. See, I'll just look at me eyeball to eyeball. I'm trying to wrap this dude up. But you gotta pay attention. You and I can't tell the Holy Spirit what to do. He's God. I think I get kind of riled up about that because I listened to a sermon this week where the the preacher was telling the Holy Spirit what to do, and I'm like, who in the world are you (laughs) to tell God what to do? Good night. So the deal is this. In order for people to be saved, not only in our fellowship but in our community, we've got to have the, listen, rushing wind of the Holy Spirit to work. So we can't tell the Holy Spirit what to do, but we can beg Him to blow His wind through the place. We can do that. But you know what I found? Most churches won't do it. Most churches ain't do. It. We're not calling down the Holy Spirit asking Him to move. Now, I'll tell you straight up, I've asked Him to move this morning. Y'all all right with that? Some of you, I'm sure, have as well. But man, how how impactful would this fellowship be as missionaries in this culture if we just beg God the Holy Spirit to move? Swear to that. Some of you need to be saved this morning. Yeah, I believe all that. I've been to church all my life. The devil believes all that. The devil goes to church every Sunday. Some of y'all skip devil shows up every weekend. That don't mean he's going to heaven. Y'all ain't listening, are you? Have you genuinely given your heart to Christ? If not, why in the world would you walk out of here saddened, but not repenting and placing trust in Christ? You need to do it. Let's bow. Father, in Jesus' name, speak to hearts. Your head bowed, your eyes closed. If you